2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 10. It will actually go probably closer to through 14 this evening. We've often remarked at Legacy Baptist Church that the whole of the biblical record reveals God to be interested not only in our intentions, but also in our actions. Jesus told us that God desires men to worship him both in spirit and in truth. To worship him in spirit through a heart of sincerity and love for God, but also to worship him in truth with a determination to obey God's will, to do it God's way. And the church has rightly identified today that God sees our hearts, and this is very important to remember, that uh, the condition upon which we find favor with God is not explicitly what we are doing, that though we have uh, different standards, if we are doing what we are doing and it's not offending a, a biblical standard and it is in faith, then we are indeed free to have slightly different biblical standards. But what we have been tempted to do as, as a, a church, and I, I don't say our church implicitly, but more, more the, the, the Western church at large, what we have been tempted to do in response to that truth about God seeing our hearts is to throw out the, another biblical truth that God has a certain way he wants things done and it is our responsibility to identify that way and conform ourselves unto it. And the consequences of ignoring God's way and doing things our way can be very serious. Today we're going to learn this lesson through an act of David. He is going to try to change something that didn't need to be changed. He's going to try to solve a problem that didn't need to be solved. He's going to do things his way when God had a different way that he had already said he wanted things done. He's going to seek a new way where God had not just asked, but commanded a different way, an old way. And through it, Lord willing, we will learn that old isn't always bad. Sometimes old simply means that our unchanging God has things the way he wants them. And we need to do things the way he wants them. Likewise, new isn't always good. Sometimes change is not a reflection of improvement. Sometimes change is just a reflection of a restless heart, one that's discontent with God's way, or a lazy heart, one that doesn't want to do things God's way, one that's eager to be more like the world rather than more like Christ. And so we'll walk through the first few verses of 2 Samuel 6 and learn a some important lessons about a new cart, but an old problem. Our text opens with David gathering together 30,000 men with him with the intent of going and retrieving the Ark of the Covenant. Notice what we read in verses 1 and 2. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. So remember where we left ourselves last time. David had been established. Hiram had built, him a him, had built David a house. He had, he had realized that his kingdom was established. And then following that, he inquired of the Lord and sought the Lord's will and defeated the Philistines 
in two decisive battles. And so we see great success. And, and David is, is now in a place of success. Jerusalem has been established. He has his house. Now he's going to get the ark of God. The text tells us that God had been called in Israel the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. That was the name of God, the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And yet, for the last 70 years or so, the ark had not been in the tabernacle. The ark had effectively been out of the mind of the nation of Israel. The tabernacle, at least in part of the last 70 years, had been at Nob. Before that, we know it had been at Shiloh. We know this because this is where, remember, Nob is where David fled when he fled from Saul in 1 Samuel 21. And he fled to Ahimelech the high priest in the tabernacle at Nob. We know that when the ark left the tabernacle, the tabernacle was with Eli the high priest in Shiloh back in just the first few chapters of, of 1 Samuel. The tabernacle, uh, the, the, uh, the ark, has been in Kirjath-Jerim during this time. Now we learn more about uh, David's motivations for desiring to bring the ark up to Jerusalem in the parallel account, which we can read in 1 Chronicles 13. In 1 Chronicles 13, verses 1 through 4, we read this, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with every leader, and David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and the Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, and let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And also the congregation said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David, uh, as we fill in the gaps here with First Chronicles 13, David consults the people and he says, Look, we have not consulted with the Lord during the days of Saul. Now, the leaders of the tribes had submitted themselves to David, but they were scattered. The scattered nature of the people meant that there were still regions that had not really been brought into the unity of the kingdom. And as David thought on this, he reasoned that there would be no better way to unite the people than to retrieve the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, from the place where it had been sitting for the last 50 to 70 years. The ark was supposed to reside, remember, in the, in the tabernacle, in the holiest of holies, in that place on the other side of the veil where the high priest would only go in once a year. <coughs> Excuse me, the tabernacle was in Nob. Nob is where David fled. The ark, God promised his presence in the nation of Israel, and he promised it as he dwelt above the mercy seat of the ark. David wanted the presence of the Lord. David wanted God's blessing. And so he wanted that ark to come back to where it belonged, to come back to the tabernacle. He moves the tabernacle to Jerusalem, and now he wants to retrieve this ark. Now, before we continue the account, let's remember a bit of the history that the ark had uh, with the tabernacle. I gave you a, a brief. Let, let me get a little more specific here. The tale began in 1 Samuel 4, in the days of Eli, the high priest's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were directing worship in Israel. Uh, it was the very end of the judges, the time of the judges, a time when uh, 
the men of the nation of Israel did that which was right in their own eyes. Israel is in a battle with the Philistines and it's not going well for them. So they decide that in order to try to get a pick-me-up, a morale boost for the battle, uh, in order to have, effectively, if you remember the message, manipulate God into winning their battle for them, they brought the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield thinking that if the Ark was there, surely the presence of the Lord would be there and they would have victory almost by default. Well, God is not to be manipulated. The nation did not have the blessing of God upon the battle. They were a sinful people. They were not changing their sinful ways. And so they bring the Ark. They lose the battle. Many are destroyed. And the Ark was taken to the land of the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas are killed. The Ark is taken. Upon hearing that the ark was taken, Eli, the high priest, falls back in his chair. Remember, the, script tells, the scriptures tell us that he was a, a, a fat man. And when he fell back in his chair, he fell upon his neck. He broke his neck and he died. So the ark is in the land of the Philistines for seven months. And throughout that time, the Philistines were cursed, right? They were cursed with plagues. So they were sending the ark from city to city to city saying, here, now you can have the ark. You take the ark. And they keep sending it along because of, of the plague. So much so that cities were ready to go to battle with anyone who would bring the ark near them. They, say, they, they effectively were, were guarding their cities with, with military might, lest the ark make it into their city. So the priest's prescription, when the people asked, what should we do here, was to send the ark away. Send the ark away and allow the Lord to take it back if he's actually the one. So they prepared gold offerings for the Lord. They put it in a cart. And in 1 Samuel 6, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Now, therefore, this is the priests talking of, of the priests of the Philistines. In 1 Samuel, excuse me, 6. 1 Samuel 6, verses 7 and 8. Now, therefore, make a new cart and take two milch kine on which there hath come no yoke and tie the kine to the cart and bring their calves home from them and take the ark of the Lord and lay it on the cart and put the jewels of gold which ye return, for, to, which ye return him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side thereof and send it away that it may go. So these pagans decided that the best way to pacify God would be to make a new cart a cart that had never been used before, and to put on it two milch kine, which would have been female cows, uh, oxen that had never labored, and, and take their babies away from them, and then put the ark on this new cart, put the trespass offering on this new cart, and send it away. And if it ends up going to Israel, then surely the Lord was plaguing them. If it ends up just wandering to who knows where, then they're all just being superstitious and, and there's, really, you know, there's really no God in heaven. So the text tells us the cart leaves and it beelines it directly for the Jewish city of Beth Shemesh, where the people rejoiced until they tried to open the cart and look in it. And when they tried to open the cart and look in it, the text tells us 50,000 men were killed in that area. And of this devastation, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 6, verse 20 through 7, verse 2, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it to you before we all die, right? And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord 
and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath Jerim that the time was long for it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the ark ends up in Kirjath Jerim where the text says it would remain for 20 years. Now likely this 20 years only considers the location of the ark until the time when Saul would begin his reign. The people would be led of the king rather than directly of the Lord. Uh, so the ark was less necessary for them for guidance. In total then, if it was 20 years up to when Saul was anointed king, and then you had the 40 years of Saul's reign, and then you had approximately 8 years for David to get to this point, 8 to 10 years to get to the point where he was king in Hebron for 7 1⁄2 years, and then he subdues Jerusalem, and then he gets a house built for him, and now he's at rest in his kingdom. Uh, it would be about 70 years overall. Uh, that the ark was resting in Kirjath Jerim, and now David wants it to come home to the tabernacle. So the text continues in verse 3 to give you that there's our context. Verse 3 it says, And they set the cart of God. Now, now we're back in 2 Samuel 6. Now in 1 Samuel 6, the pagans set the ark of God on a new cart to get it to Israel. Now the scriptures tell us in 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, and they, that would be David and, and his men, set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, that was in Gibeah, and Yudzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. David gets a new cart, places the ark on that new cart, takes the ark out of the house of Abinadab. The man now driving the new cart is Yudzah and Ahio. Now the text told us in 1 Samuel that Abinadab's son Eleazar had been sanctified to keep the ark. Now we have two other of Abinadab's sons driving the ark, um, taking the, uh, the ark on this new cart to its new home. They're likely the grandsons, technically, of Abinadab some 70 years later. It says the sons of Abinadab, but in the Hebrew language, a grandson can be called a son. It's more or less the posterity of. So we would assume this to probably be the sons of Eleazar, who was the son of Abinadab, though Eleazar being the one who had been sanctified to care for the ark 70 years earlier. And this was probably that next generation. But what needs to be recognized and understood here is the way that they sought to bring the ark up from Kirjath Jerim on a new cart. We've read this before. We read it in 1 Samuel 6. The same way the Philistines were going to send the ark back to Israel. It worked for them, so why not do it again? But there's a problem with this. God had a way that he had commanded Israel to carry the ark. And this wasn't that way, was it? God's expectation for how to transport the Ark of the Covenant is read in Exodus 25, verses 12 to 14. The text tells us this. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof and two rings in the one side of it and the other side of it, excuse me. No. And two rings shall be in the one side of it and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the Ark that the ark may be born with them. 
God specifically says that the ark was to be carried by rods. So the ark would have been a rectangular box and on each corner of the rectangular box would have been a ring. And there would have been two rings here and two rings there and then there would have been two staves that would have been fed through the rings on either side of the ark. And then four men, presumably maybe two depending on uh, weight and such, would take those rings, uh, would take those staves and would hold the ark. And so there would be transportation for the ark through those staves, very stable, and it would be the Levites that were commanded to do it. As a matter of fact, there was a particular family of the Levites. Now, likewise, we read in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, it was the duty, here it is, of the Kohathites, the children of the Levites, to carry the ark, but never to touch the ark, lest they would die. Numbers 4, 15, we read this, And when Aaron and his sons had made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. So here you have it. God's way to carry the ark. The Kohathites carry it. They carry it with staves through the rings that are on the sides of the ark. If they touch the ark, they die. But David set the ark on a new cart just like the Philistines had done some 70 years earlier. Continue reading. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, that would be in front. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instrument made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and on timbrels and on the cornets and on cymbals. The ark of God is brought out with rejoicing. David and all the people are playing instruments. It's a procession. It's a procession. There's about 12 miles from Kirjath-Jerim to, to Jerusalem. And as they begin on their journey, they are just rejoicing and they are happy and they're, they're, they're singing and they're dancing and everything is going very well and everyone is so happy. Ahio's in front leading the ark. The people are following the ark. Uzzah is next to the ark. And then something happens. Verses 6 through 7. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Yudzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen shook it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yudzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. So near the threshing floor of a man named Nacon, the text tells us that the cart became unsettled. It would make sense, right? I mean, it's not like they were on paved roads back then. Uh, some roads were, were, were decent. But the cart is on, on these roads. The oxen are pulling it. And it, it bumps. It, 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 it rattles. Something happens. Maybe it's a, a hole in the road or whatnot. And the ark becomes unstable. Well, what is Yudza to do, right? He is taking care of the ark. So he does what one would expect. And he puts out his hand to steady the ark so it won't tip. And the moment he touches the ark, God strikes him dead. Exactly what God promised in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, he would do to anyone who touched the holy thing. 
So Yudzah died. Verses 8 and 9. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Yudzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Yudzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come unto me? David is displeased. He's actually angry at this. But it's important to understand that it's not God he's angry at here. Grammatically, him being displeased is not him being displeased at the Lord. He's angry at the result of what has happened here. He's angry that what he is trying to do is right, and he's trying to get the ark back to the tabernacle, and he's trying to make this good thing happen, and a man has died. This event which was planned by him, led by him, directed by him, uh, conceived by him, has led to this man's death. And perhaps David sees for the first time that this cart idea was not a very good one. And maybe that's what displeased him as well. Maybe he was displeased with himself here because he just realized what had happened and he just realized that his decision-making has led to a man's death. Perhaps it also reminded him that God's ways are not up for debate. And that if he were going to trace the reason for Yuzah's death, certainly the cart shook, certainly Yuzah put out his hand, certainly uh, Yuzah is responsible for putting out his hand and touching the ark, and yet he's the one who decided how that ark would get back to Jerusalem. And this realization brought David to a place of fear. What other problems might David introduce to the city of Jerusalem through his ignorance or neglect? He was reminded that day that though God sees our hearts, God also has a a way he wants things done. David's heart was right. He was rejoicing and, and delighting in the Lord, and yet things weren't done the way God wanted, and there were consequences. Perhaps he was instilled with a new sense of importance regarding how things must be done, in regard to worshiping the Lord. So we read in verses 10 and 11, David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David says, I can't bring the ark up to Jerusalem this way. This is not right. I'm not comfortable. Uh, and, And he just sets it aside and he brings it to the house of a man named Obed-Edom who would hold it for now. And the scriptures tell us that this man, Obed-Edom, was blessed. Obed-Edom was a Levite. And amazingly enough, he was of the family of the Kohathites, the ones who were intended to carry the ark. The same family that Numbers 4 tells us to carry the ark. His family's lot as Levites was technically to watch over the coverings of the tabernacle, the tents. And yet, as a a member of the Kohathites, he was legally allowed to be the one to carry this ark. Well, David takes the ark there, and the scriptures tell us he leaves it there for three months, and Obed-Edom is greatly blessed for having the presence of the Lord there through the ark. Verse 12, And it was told... 
King David saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. David sees the ark there and Obed-Edom being blessed and he says that, that blessing belongs to Israel. Why, why should Obed-Edom be the only one? That's what David wants. That's the reason why he wanted to get the ark because he wants that blessing for the nation. That's what he wants. And so he sees that the, the Lord is still blessing through the ark, that God has not turned himself, uh, his, his wrath on anybody who has the ark, that it was simply because Yudza touched the ark, he's comforted by this, and he goes and he gets the ark and brings it to the city of David. That would be Jerusalem with gladness. Verses 13 and 14 tell us, And it was so that when they had bare the ark of the Lord, that when they that bare the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was gird, girded with linen and ephod. We'll talk more about these two verses next week. But notice right at the beginning here. Do you see the difference? In, chapter, in the beginning of chapter 6, it says, And they put it on a new cart. And then here in this verse, And they that bear the ark. Something's different this time. Something's different this time that wasn't there last time. A method has changed. What's different? Well, let's go back to 1 Chronicles 15, and we'll find out. In 1 Chronicles 15, verses 1 through 4, the text tells us, And David made him houses in the city of David, and prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched for it a tent. That would be the tabernacle. Then David said, Listen to this. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord unto his place, which he had prepared for it. And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the... Uh, and this is jumping to verse 12, excuse me. Uh, verse 12 and 13. And said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye of your brethren, that ye may bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. David assembles the Levites, saying that the reason they had not been blessed the first time, the reason why Yudzah died the first time, is because they didn't do it God's way. Not because they didn't genuinely love God or desire His presence, but because they didn't seek the due order by which God wanted the ark transported. He learned his lesson, didn't he? And so in 1 Chronicles 15, he says, let's get the Levites involved. And thus we read in 2 Samuel 6, the second time, and they that bear the ark, they bore the ark the second time. David wasn't about to make the same mistake twice. He had learned an important lesson. Let's make a couple of applications this evening. first application we're going to consider number one 
in a spiritual context, new is not always improved. New is not always improved. We live in a culture that is always, always craving something new, aren't we? There's always something new, always new eye candy, always something new to appeal to the flesh. Oftentimes, this newness doesn't always correlate to need, a need for something new. It correlates to change. And that's okay. Humans need change. A change of pace, change of scenery. Humans need these things. But in the realm of the spiritual, when it comes to change, we need to be careful. When you talk about a, a new way to worship, a new way to do church, new ideas about God and the Bible, this should cause a believer to perk their ears and heighten their discernment. It should at least throw up a yellow flag, if not a red flag. As important as it is that we don't throw something out just because it is new, it's doubly important that in the realm of spiritual worship and practice, we approach anything truly new with great care and great discernment. And the reason for this is because we serve a God who is unchanging. In the Old Testament, he had definitive methods of worship and piety that were not to be tweaked. There was not to be change in the law. For the first 500 years that the nation of Israel was in the land of promise until its captivity, and even the 500 years when they got back from captivity to the advent of Christ, it was expected that God would be worshipped the same way, according to the same law and in the same manner. Things didn't need to change because God had not changed. His expectations had not changed. So why should worship change? The law had not changed, and the law was the, the thing that prescribed worship. Now, obviously, things in the New Testament are quite different. The Bible has very little to say about methods of worship, only the nature of worship, what it is and how it manifests itself. There's little clear Bible teaching on the ins and outs of church structure. We build more around what we find mentioned and what we find omitted than we do direct teaching. But in the past half century, more than perhaps any other time in the history, the world has been in a state of change. As a matter of fact, I can say with confidence that uh, since for, for the majority of the biblical record, we are in a time of, of probably the greatest change. Now we talk about the years of the flood, and of course there was a greater change in that time. But for the majority of, of the historical record, the last half century, the last 50 years, has been a time of momentous change. Every year things are different, and people want to be different. I mean, you think about someone that was born in the early 1900s, imagine how much things have changed. I mean, you're talking about horse and buggy to planes, trains, and automobiles. The world used to watch as generation after generation passed with little changing. You grew up on the farm, you took over the farm, you had kids, they grew up on the farm, they took over the farm. The same people from generation to generation, the same buildings, the same way of life. 
Things aren't like that anymore, are they? Everything is changing. Everything is in flux. People don't necessarily live in the same place that they grew up anymore. It's so easy to travel. A couple of weeks ago, we made it to Ohio, then to Florida, and then back here from between Sunday to Sunday. I mean, wow. 3,000 miles round trip in, in a matter of six days. It's not a good idea, but we did it. It's exhausting. People want new. People want better. People are moving. Things are changing. And this has rubbed off on the church quite a bit, hasn't it? The church is trying to change, to adapt, to modernize. The church looks at what is old and they reject it, not because it's bad, but just because it's old. Not because it's inferior, but just because it doesn't mesh with the kind of lifestyle that we lead today. And this is a real problem. Now, Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. So really, the, 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 this is not something in the heart of a man, the, the, the need for change, the need for something different. It's, that's actually not a new thing. The, the need to tweak and to change worship and to change interpretations has always been there. And we've seen that just never at the kind of breakneck speeds we're dealing with today. You know, the old adage goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. One of the best examples of this whole thing, I was talking to a, a guy a couple of weeks ago about the car industry and lamenting how the car industry works. The industry makes a car with a certain design, and over several years, that certain design is, is tweaked, right? It's changed a little bit. It's tweaked a little bit. Uh, some of the issues that they had with the engine or maybe the issues that they had with certain things, get, get, the kinks get worked out over time. But you know what's really frustrating? Is when there's a great car, a great model, a great engine, it's reliable, it does a good job, and then five or six years after it comes out, they come out with a redesign, right? A ground-up redesign. And you look at that and you say, wow, that looks neat, and that's great, because that's what they want, right? People are bored with the old model, they want a new model, they want something that looks fresh, looks different, looks new. Uh, it, it, it infuses life into the line, and, and you need that in order for people to buy. But what else does it do? It introduces a bunch more new problems, because everything is different. The engine may be more economical, but maybe less reliable. May look better from the outside, but maybe it doesn't use space as efficiently anymore. And you kind of look at that, and me being the kind of guy I am, I say, look, you had a perfectly functional vehicle that did a great job at what it's supposed to do, and you ruined it. But why? Because people need new. They want new. They've got to have new. It's built into us. And you know, sometimes we can do this in our spiritual lives as well, and in the church. We introduce new things not because they're better, but just because they're new. Now, we could give example after example. We could talk about music. And it's not a problem to have new music, or music that ap appeals to the modern ear. But the we, we sing several modern hymns in our church, hymns from the last decade, several of them. New is not necessarily wrong, but the reason why the majority of the music we use in this church is old is because there's a generation, there was a generation that made 
doctrinally rich music which calls our spirits into a state of true and genuine worship of God and teaching our souls the character of God. And this generation, by and large, is not it. It is not it. But the church wants a new cart. Not because it's a better way. They perceive it as a better way because it reaches people in a different way because it's appealing. It's new. It's different. But it's not better spiritually. Modern focus, modern worship focuses on feeling above doctrine, experience above clarity. And this is not a step forward. This is a new cart. This is a step backward. The same can be said about all sorts of different things. Internet church, many Bible versions. They're new, but are they better? And if they're not better or even comparable to what we have now, then spiritually speaking, we've taken a step back. We get this idea that new is always improved. But since faith doesn't change, we need to be careful about this mindset. David made a new cart. The cart was something new. It was something different. It's not the way they used to carry the ark in old times. And while it was new, it certainly wasn't improved. In fact, the new cart not only made the ark unstable, not only directly opposed the will of God, but it led to the destruction of a man's life. You know, so much of what the, new, the church is doing today is like David's new cart. Sure, it's new. But, you know, it doesn't measure up. It doesn't do what God has asked us to do. It doesn't meet, doesn't fulfill the requirements of what God wants us to be doing in worship. And sometimes, when we look at the broader church around us, it's even directly opposing the word of God and the will of God. Now again, I'm not on a new rampage tonight. I'm not here to tell you that everything new is bad. We've got a projector. We'll be getting a new one soon. Uh, a modern one because, because we'll, we'll be getting one that is modern in technology. The projector is a fairly new thing in churches. It's a great addition to church. It is helpful in so many ways. There's nothing wrong with it. It facilitates our worship. We're not against new here. But new needs to be sufficient, right, proper. And if it's not helping our worship, if it's not helping proper worship, if it's hindering worship, if it's muddying the water, then it's not something that we ought to be doing. It's a new card. Point number two. First, in the spiritual context, new is not always improved. Second, it is dangerous to assimilate pagan methods into divine worship. It is dangerous to assimilate pagan methods into divine worship. Not only was David's change in using this new cart not better, not only was David's change in using this new cart actually opposed to the direct revelation of what God wanted, 
But when we consider the new cart that David used, we find that this was the second time the ark had been placed on a new cart. Seventy years earlier, the Philistines had put the ark on a new cart. And whether David knew it or not, he was emulating pagan concepts, pagan practices in his attempt to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He was emulating the Philistines and their pagan priests and the pagan priests' best assumption as to how God would be pleased. They didn't know that God wanted it to be carried by the staves. They didn't have the law. So what did they think? Well, a new cart. It's never been used before. It's sanctified under the Lord. Sanctified under the Lord. That's a good thing, right? We want it sanctified under the Lord. It's new. We, we built it specially for the Lord. The Lord's got to be pleased with that. It's new. It's sanctified. It's, it's, it's special to him. We'll put the ark on that, and that'll be special to him. That was the best the pagans could do. But that wasn't what God wanted. It's interesting to note just how many new concepts in the church aren't really new, but they're retrofitted pagan worship methods. We could speak of the church becoming infatuated with meditation, which is a Near Eastern pagan worship custom. We could speak of the church adopting a business model to attract people through advertisement, through appeal, through entertainment, through incentives, rather than attracting people through truth and obedience. Whenever the church assimilates pagan methods into operation and worship, it's tearing down important distinctives. The world doesn't need churches that feel and look just like the world. The world doesn't need a church where it steps into the church and it feels at home. Are we not citizens of a heavenly country? Do we not live by an entirely different set of rules, an entirely different mindset, an entirely different standard than the world around us? Can we properly represent our heavenly home by retrofitting our lives and our worship and our operation to look just like the world around us? Can we really just take the pagans' best efforts at acknowledging God, bring them into worship of the true and living God, and say, this is better? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Peter calls for us to live as obedient children, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts in our ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, he said, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That word holy meaning set apart. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We're not of this world. So why should we adapt what the world does when it comes to worship of our Lord? Why should we make the world comfortable doing what we do? If the world can do all the things that we do, and can live the way we live without any 
degree of discomfort or without any recognition of need for the Spirit of God, if the world can act like us and look like us and if we can look like the world and act like the world and there's no difference between us, then what are we doing here? Then why do we need to spend our time reading this book if it's just going to make us look and act exactly how the world looks and acts? If the only difference between the church and the world is that we're more positive people, we're more kind people, if we're just a better version of what is already here, then we might as well go home. Because you can be a better version of your neighbor without any sort of spiritual help. But we aren't just a better version of what's already here, are we? You are not just a better version of the rest of the world. We aren't just the nice side of humanity. We're something entirely different altogether, aren't we? From the inside out, we are made of different stuff. We are a new creation in Christ. And we ought to live like it. It's dangerous to take the pagan methods of this world and of worship and assimilate them into our worship. Because in doing so, we run the risk of tearing down the very essence of who we are. And by the way, God hates it. Point number three as we close. Spiritual leaders have a grave responsibility to know God's will and to lead his followers into it. Whether through ignorance or through disregard, David did not follow God's command regarding how the Ark of the Covenant should be carried. It was David's decision, ultimately, to allow the Ark to be put on a new cart. Why was it put there? I don't know. Maybe Abinadab said, hey, look. Uh, or or Yudza or, or Eleazar said, hey, 70 years ago when that ark came to us, it came back on a new cart. I remember it. The people of, um, uh, the, the people of the city actually broke down the new cart and used the fire from it, slew the oxen and used the fire from the cart to burn the oxen and sacrifice unto the Lord. I remember the stories. It was a new cart. Let's do that same thing. And David says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, okay, sounds good enough to me. Let's do it. Whatever, let's just get the car, let, let's just get it here. Disregard for the fact that God had a way, that he wanted it done. It was David's decree that was being followed as Yudza stood next to the cart and escorted that cart to Jerusalem. And yet when the cart shook and the ark began to tumble and Yudza put out his hand to steady the ark, it was Yudza who died. David's decision to move the ark on a new cart, to take the, car, the, the ark to Jerusalem with this new method, new and improved, rather than God's prescribed way, led directly to Yudza's death. Don't miss this. Yes, it was Yudza that put out his hand. Yes, it was Yudza who tried to steady the ark. Yes, it was Yudza who died. But if David the spiritual leader of the people of Israel had set about to do God's will, God's way. The way God wanted it to begin with, instead of trying to do something new, Yudza would have never been in the position where he would have had to have steadied the ark. And he would not have died.
Now, this is a grave warning to all of us who are in positions of spiritual leadership or who are going to be in positions of spiritual leadership. You know, our ignorance will not spare us or those who follow us from the consequences of our decisions. And those consequences can be severe. We all want change. We all want new. We crave different. It's a part of who we are as a culture. But spiritual leaders, future spiritual leaders, may I encourage you not to just, when it comes to worship, when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to what you understand about this book, when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to that which has been passed down through the church from generation to generation, may I encourage you to take change carefully. It's not to say you can't do things differently or that you shouldn't do things differently. But you really need to know what you're doing when you make the change. You really need to think about it. If you don't know why something was there to begin with, a wise man once said that, that he would never tear down a standard until he knew why that standard was there to begin with. That he would never tear down the old until he understood why the, why the old had been erected. You know, sometimes we look at things and we say, why is that there? Why is he wearing a suit to church? Why are they using that instrument and not other instruments? Why are they doing that? Why aren't they doing this? Well, I don't know, so let's just get rid of it. Well, you know, if it was put up by men and women who loved the Lord, there was probably a reason. Find that reason before you tear it down. And maybe the reason is invalid now. You know, there was a time where certain things were discouraged in the church for legitimate reasons. There was a time where going to a movie theater, and, and to some churches it's still a problem, but where going to movie theater was a legitimate problem in the church, where wearing certain types of clothing was a legitimate problem. And it was because the, either the associations or the reasons for going to that place at the time were unbecoming a follower of Christ. And things have changed today, haven't they? Things have changed to where a Christian can go to a movie theater without scorning or spurning in any way their testimony or the name of Christ. But don't tear down that standard until you know why it was put up. And once you see why it's put up, then you can say, okay, the reason why it was put up is no longer valid. So it can be torn down. But if you don't know why it was put up, you know what you run the risk of doing? You run the risk of building a new cart. You run the risk of saying, well, 70 years ago there was this, and, and I, I don't really, uh, you know, there, there are these four loops on, on the ark, but hey, I mean, wh why have some guys carry it when you can just put it on a cart? So let's just put it on a cart. I mean, problem solving 101, except that there was a reason why God wanted it the way he did. And that reason is because that ark could not be touched. And if a man touched it, he'd be killed. And the reason was because God wanted it the way he wanted it. So you do it. So may I encourage you, spiritual leaders, young people too, as, as you grow, you're going to be making decisions for yourself. But here, we're looking at David. We're looking at a man who made a decision and someone else died for that decision. 
Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, spiritual leader, when you make that change, does God want that change? Is that change going to help? Is that change going to make things spiritually better? Or is it just going to be more fun? Is it just going to be different? Have you stopped to consider why things are the way they have been? And if there is any true spiritual benefit to change or what spiritual benefits you might be losing by change? If David had stopped to ask God or even really stopped to consider his actions at all, he would have understood that the way that God wanted the ark moved was the way that God wanted the ark moved. And that time and consideration or that petition unto the Lord would have saved a man's life. Parents, it's not your responsibility to make decisions for your children throughout their course of their lives. But it is your responsibility to understand the will of the Lord for your children while they're under your care, for your family, and to lead your family into the will of the Lord. And whether by disregard or by ignorance, when we ignore God's way, we build a new cart, we worship the Lord our way without consulting the Lord on it, we might cost, not necessarily ourselves, but perhaps the next generation something deep, something dear. As a pastor, it's my responsibility to understand the will of the Lord for God's church and to lead the church into it. And when I fail, whether by disregard or by ignorance, it can be very costly for you all. And so this evening, we consider the need to be careful. Change is not necessarily bad. But it isn't necessarily good either. Our church is traditional. Most people would call us resistant to change. But that's not true. We're just careful. And if it ain't broke, then we're not going to try to fix it. We've identified elements of the historic church and the historic faith which are, we believe, spiritually superior to today's concepts and methods. And we embrace them. Not because they are old, but because they are proven. And because we believe they reflect the Word of God. That's why we're a non-age segregated church. That's why we don't split our children up. Because until 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the concept of taking your children away from the parents for services was, was a pretty rare thing. And as we look back on the historic church, we see something there that makes a lot more sense than what people are doing today. That just perhaps what the modern church has done today is they've built a new cart. They've tried to solve a problem that wasn't there. Or they've tried to solve a problem that was there in the, in the way that God has not prescribed it. When it's time to change in the ways that we ought to change or can change, we should. But not just for the sake of change. Lest we, like David, build a new cart. We change for the sake of the Lord by His will through His blessing in order to heighten, to advance our capacity to serve Him. Not like David to build a new cart for when we do we certainly run the risk, not just of our own destruction, but the destruction of others.
Let's close and pray.